Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Glenn Morgan. Glenn is the Managing Director of Credit Limited, a receivables management and risk specialist for the invoice finance and insolvency industries. Glenn, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you. I'm on the air with us too, Glenn. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and business leaders, governments having to feel their way through what is ultimately an unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within your industry, how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's posed a fair few challenges for yourselves as well. Yes, it's, uh, it's definitely been interesting. I think we've we've seen a, a dip in work, but not as significantly as quite a lot of other industries. Um, we're still getting uh, instructed on cases. The main challenge we've had is we can be instructed on cases. We set up remote working for the team and we're able to you know, send letters, all the usual things. But how many people were actually receiving them? So although the caseload coming in was as almost as before, the actual uh, recovery rates dipped significantly because quite a lot of people just you know, simply weren't available. Uh, quite a lot of the people we did then get hold of simply said, we're not doing anything for a couple of months until we see how this is going to pan out, which we completely understand. We completely understand that. I think um, I've I've commented before to the parliamentary review, I believed that anybody receiving government support by the way of of civils or bounce-back loans or anything should actually be committing as part of that to to paying their debts as and when they fall due and and not using COVID as an excuse if they've received some kind of, of support. And I believe it's been quite mixed, you know, the responses that we've had. So I guess to sort of summarise with regards to the impact, I I made the decision on day one of the lockdown that uh, we wouldn't be going down the furlough route, uh, that all of my staff would be paid in full um, by ourselves and and, and everything else would, you know, continue to to tick along. We have seen a dip in turnover, um, but that has been mainly impacted by the fact that uh, as, as we deal with collections, that we've just not been able to get hold of as many people as we would have liked to recover. That said, we're also completely aware that uh, that at the end of this, when whatever the new normal looks like uh, appears, then um, then we're going to be very busy. And I think for for you know for quite a period of time, because there's a lot of businesses really struggling out there. There are certainly, and I can imagine there's going to be um, a spike in demand for such services when, of course, debts are going to be falling uh, due as well, because um, ultimately, small business loans are eventually going to have to be paid back, even though it's helping in the short term from the government's perspective. So the can is sort of almost being kicked down the road a little bit, isn't it? And there are going to be still some hiccups to come along the way. I think so, yeah. I mean, the the primary sort of goal and what my team need to do at all times, and, and that hasn't really changed, is is when you're chasing debts, is differentiating the can't payers from the won't payers. The can't payers, we have a great deal of empathy for, and obviously they've grown and grown over, over this last few months with people with genuine financial reasons why they can't settle their debts. Um, differentiating those from the won't payers, 
is is very difficult. We've had a, a few firms who we know have continued to trade throughout, um, and some you know some some of the bigger retail firms, for instance, that have actually probably seen an increase in uh, in turnover over that period of time, who've actually tried to use COVID as a reason for not paying, despite the fact that they've probably got more money than they've ever had. Um, so. A lot of what myself and my team have to do is differentiate those those can't pay us from those won't pay us, and, and making sure that people using it as a reason are are genuine. So um, that that's just been heightened really over the last few months because people will unfortunately uh, sometimes use that as an excuse, even though it hasn't really affected them. And in terms of how the company itself, Credit, has adapted to this, how have um, the staff members taken to continuing to work remotely? And the reason I ask that is because we've heard some incredible stories from all over the country, people really going above and beyond during this period, whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've had to continue going on site as normal under new procedures. And I can imagine sort of it's been the case for yourselves as well, and you've been sort of quite encouraged and inspired by what you've seen. Yes, yeah. I mean, we've we've managed to take on cases almost exclusively remotely. Um, so, you know, speaking to directors of businesses in trouble, uh, getting access to dial into their systems, getting access to their to their uh, accounting software, getting couriers sent out to you know to pick up paperwork, etc. And um, our record is actually just under three hours from getting the call to getting everything we needed and managing to get letters. We uh, out in the post. We've managed to use a, a remote company that does the posting for us. So we've been pretty much as close to business as usual as you can possibly get. As, as I said before, our only impact has been we can do all the things we're normally doing, but who's actually receiving the uh, you know the correspondence that we're sending out? So I think it's evolved to doing a lot more by email and phone call because you know, formal letters weren't necessarily uh, hit where they need to. Uh, but my team have been fantastic. I have to say they've they've all taken to it, uh, you know, taken to it very easily. I'm just speaking to them on the phone a lot more than I normally would be speaking to them in person, and and that's been our significant change really uh, on that side of things. The only other thing that we've done really to adapt, and and this has been in the in the working for quite some time, is we've actually launched uh, an app which uh, SME businesses can use to collect in their debt. Where they can upload the um, the information onto the app, and it does an automated collection process for them, so they don't have to have access to the post office. They don't have to have their staff, um, you know, chasing the debt. It will actually be done for them in a in a you know in a fully automated way, and um, and you know that that that's been pretty beneficial to people during this period of time as well. That's really, really encouraging to hear um, as well, Glenn. And I know, of course, her business has largely been almost uh, the same for yourself. So like sort of guidelines, COVID secure, et cetera, don't necessarily apply to you as much as it does to other businesses. But considering that there has been a great deal of debate around clarity and transparency over what's expected of business moving forward, um, are you satisfied that over the next few months, you're very clear about what's expected of you and you understand how it's going to be for the wider industry as well? We are, yes, yes. So we, we had a number of our client um, clients on the phone early, very early into the lockdown. Uh, banks and invoice finance companies, etc., uh, all with uh, you know, wanting us to uh, discuss with them our, what our approach would be during this period of time, and also as we're starting to come out of it. And it harks back to what I was saying before. Really, is you know we really need to have empathy for the people that we are chasing the debt from if they've got a genuine reason 
why um, they can't pay, then we'll, we have to park it for a period of time. We have to work with them. And if things take longer, then they take longer. You know, we've got to support businesses during this period of time and, and, and not uh, treat it in the way that we used to before all of this happened because there are you know, so many and we still don't know the full extent of it yet who, who will be struggling. So we've, we've written a COVID policy as to how we approach and, and chase the debt and we'll be sticking to that probably for the rest of this year, regardless of what happens, just because it is the right and ethical thing to do. And it would certainly be what our clients are expecting of us. And do you think that there will be some positives to take from this experience in the sense that those businesses that make it through, there will be some resilience bred into them for today's generation of business leaders? There will also be some vital experience of crisis management here. And for those employees continuing to work through this, they're venturing beyond their comfort zones, really going above and beyond. And that will ultimately help in building character and be a real learning curve for them as well. There will be positive things to come out of this in the way of lessons learned and the fact that it's also forced businesses to innovate in ways as well. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot more flexible working. I think people will realise that, or businesses will realise that their staff are working just as hard, if not harder, when left to their own devices for a large extent. Um, I think there'll be a lot more Zoom calls, team calls and things like that instead of travelling 150, 200 miles uh, just to have an hour and a half meeting. Um, obviously, it won't replace lunches, but as far as it being a you know a meeting that would take place in an office, I think people will realise that um, a lot of that can be done online from now on. And um, yeah, I think there's uh, I think there's some widespread benefits. I think it will have a good impact on the environment if there's not as many journeys being taken. I think that bigger firms will look at how much office space do they actually need to have. Um, because they don't need to have everybody in every single day. Yes, it's important for the team to have catch-ups and, and keep in regular contact with each other, but it doesn't have to be uh, the way it's been done before. And I, I think that will, you know, that will be the main positive that comes from this. But I think it's also uh, a great country with regards to the innovation that will be that has started to take place. As, as we've explained before with, with what we've tried to do. But I think there'll be you know, millions of businesses who are looking at innovating. With regards to the, the businesses that are left at the end of this, I've been quite sort of passionate about this recently. There's been a lot of bad-mouthing of the banks in the media about they haven't got enough money out quickly enough and everything. And what you've got to look at it from a point of view of is that the banks still need to know that if COVID hadn't come along, this business would be viable and therefore they've got to lend the money. They've still got a responsibility to, to lend responsibly. And I think because the last recession in 2008 didn't really have the impact because interest rates were low and, and, and companies plodded along, I think the media have turned them zombie companies, whatever you want to call them. But there's been in excess of 100,000 businesses that have just been plodding along without ever repaying their debt. Um, and I think those are the ones who, when they've applied for support this time, haven't got it because their business wasn't actually even viable before COVID. Um, and they've thrown their toys out of their pram. They expected this to be some kind of, of magic money tree. And I think I've got a huge amount of sympathy for the government and for the banks. I know a lot of them and how hard they've been working. And, and they don't deserve the, um, the the media attention that has been given to them and the fact that they're not supporting businesses because they are supporting viable businesses. And I've, you know, I've seen that firsthand. 
can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view, Glenn. And um, if we do now think about what the future holds for yourself, for Credet and for the uh, the wider industry before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme, do give me an idea of what you envision that next year holding and what do you hope to achieve ultimately during that time as we move through the pandemic, hopefully, and emerge from it and really begin to look toward the new normal? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in, in my view, I mean, late payment has become pretty close, if not exactly an a, a pandemic or epidemic, whatever you want to call it, of its own in the last sort of 10, 15 years. You know, you've got millions and millions outstanding at any time in overdue payments to businesses. That's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, you know, the Small Business Commissioner is working very hard to try and um, and get that side of things sorted, the Chartered Institute of Credit Management and, you know, any any body in the industry wants to see those payments improving unfortunately they're just not going to for quite a period of time so i think there is going to be a lot of late payments there's going to be an impact on the invoice finance industry because of that because usually they would fund invoices for a certain period of time and they're not going to get uh, it's going to go longer than that now so they're going to have to accept that but i think you know between now and probably towards the end of this year i think there is going to be a lot more overdue payments and then hopefully things will will pick up after after that side of things. Um, we're trying to do our bit to champion the cause through the through the two businesses that we've got running. I can see the the it settled app at the end of this being very popular because people are going to want to chase the debt but haven't got the time to to do it. And um, yeah, I think I think we're in for a, a bit of a rough ride for the next six months, definitely. Um, and then beyond that, it's about trying to get the economy back to, to normal as quickly as possible and, and, and hopefully going back into a growth phase as opposed to a recession. Let's certainly hope so. Um, it's certainly predicted um, without the variable of the second spike, of course, that the economic recovery will be far swifter than what we saw yeah, in 2008 yeah. for sure. Um, and, you know, Glenn, given how informative it's been discussing these issues um, on the programme with you today, I think it would be great in the next few months to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see what's changed and what the new developments are in that time. And also just to see what how work credit is getting on as well. I think that'll be great. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think that would be most enlightening from um, a listener's point of view, certainly. Um, as for today, Glenn, it's um, been a real pleasure having you uh, join us on the uh, the programme today for sure. And until we do touch base again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Will do. Thank you very much for your time, Scott. That was Glenn Morgan speaking, Managing Director of Credit Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. And that came after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and that is coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome, you're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me and realise that I did uh, score nothing 
for Essex, uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the colour of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. And what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in 
by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years, he it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict for the time. You probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, 
on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out now. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show you, you got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago. In most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me? I, I can tell you if you want. You want? You got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who 
who asked the question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. I, just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make me laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a play, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but... There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just... Luck. That's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in in football terms today. Uh, Easily, easily. And of course, going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson, who's just absolutely Mm. 
you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, hmm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, That's a they, <laughs> The straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later. Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about. Uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me: the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was. A big part, I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times, for the success of the team. We had some great players, we had some great players, of course, but without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word word is team. The word is is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking—if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, 
thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my me- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.